Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. Each month I'll bring you essays, stories, or poetry from Parabola Magazine's four decades of archives. And the podcast often features guests who offer us guided meditation or prayers. This month we're looking at a truly vintage issue of Parabola, Magic, from 1976. As a writer of fantasy novels and fairy tale retellings, I've always been enraptured by the idea of magic as a symbolic device, by the ways that magic and storytelling intersect. Parabola's editors offer some thoughts on magic, myth, power, and storytelling in their focus for the issue. Leave nothing to what is called luck, and you will be what is called lucky, is a homely saying that says something rather important about what we refer to as chance or accident. It tells us, in fact, that there is no such thing, and that none of the excuses it authorizes for us are valid. Accidents are simply the results of unseen or unforeseen causes. They break the rules of our generalized expectations, but not the inexorable laws of cause and effect. This is what seems, but only seems, puzzling about magic, which we have a good deal to say about in this issue. Magic, when it is not just trickery, seems to play with laws to make the magician's will the supreme agent. The word itself comes from a root meaning to be able, to have power. The magician is the mighty one, the worker of miracles. What then is magic? What is a miracle? Where does the power come from? What laws is it above and what laws is it under? For in the hierarchy of nature, we know of nothing below the divine absolute that does not obey the higher cause. What are the laws of magic? The French alchemist Jolivet Castelot says magic is rational, positive, for it proclaims the constancy of natural laws. But it teaches that the field of operation of these laws is infinite, and that most of them are still unknown to men. The laws we see here are the results of laws we cannot see. Christmas Humphreys, both jurist and student of the traditions, refers in this issue to some of these levels of law, and others speak of some of magic's many levels, from clever trickery to that true power, which has been defined simply as doing from changes in attitude to the miracles of revelation and transformation. Even on the level of psychological tricks, there are different qualities, for they also work their spells on the psyche, for good or ill. There is the benevolent and healing power of Ahembi, Victor Turner's jungle psychiatrist, as well as the damaging mischief behind Mukala. But magic has other reaches and other aims, and magicians range from Castaneda's men of knowledge to the dark powers of Zibalba, and the process of their art from psychological reassurance, or disintegration, to the final marvel of death and resurrection. Christ and Moses also were magicians. All this is contradictory and confusing, and does not at all explain why we are in general so fascinated with magic in its many different forms. We all love magic. We all, even those who scoff the loudest, believe in some aspect of it. How many people saw Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist? How many read Castaneda? How many, more than you think and from all over the world, attended a sorcerer's conference last fall in Bogota? How is it to be sorted out? And how understand our own involvement with it? 
Jacob Needleman's article, Magic, Sacrifice, and Tradition, Preliminary Notes, gives an important clue, especially for those seriously searching for the central current of knowledge behind and uniting all the traditional teachings. The idea of magic as gnosis, religion's method and technique, which is heartless without religion, just as religion is powerless without magic, suggests a way in which many doubts could leave their uneasy circling to take a new and developing direction, uncovering new questions. What is the difference between tradition and traditionalism? Does a teaching cease to live when it becomes a dogma and is no longer a search to realize the master's method as well as understand his meaning? Can a teaching then long survive the teacher, or how is it renewed when he is gone? What is a master or a teacher? And what are the signs of a true one? If you look at Full Circle, our letters section, you'll see that some readers are beginning to ask such questions, and we wish to invite you not only to ask, but to answer. Full Circle calls itself a forum for your ideas, and could be a sort of seedbed for Parabola's lines of thought and investigation. It might well contain dialogues between readers who resonate in different ways to the same question, or between readers and contributors, or between readers and editors. We would welcome the demands of a real exchange. We hope that the laws that govern what we call accident will allow you sufficient time between this issue and the next to react in writing to questions raised in our pages. And for the response we've had so far, both written and unwritten, we would like to say thank you. I'll introduce you to the issue with Narcissus by Thomas W. Moore. Almost everyone knows that the story of Narcissus is about self-love, but not everyone knows the story of Narcissus. We have heard from Freudians that narcissism is an infantile focusing of feeling on ourselves rather than on others, and we have been warned by moralists to avoid the doom suffered by Narcissus for excessive self-love and pride. Through pages of literature, poetic, psychological, and religious, Narcissus wanders, branded as a symbol of folly and peril. A few months ago, I took up the volume of Ovid's Metamorphoses and read the story of Narcissus, trying to forget all I had read and heard about him and his clinical incarnations, and to read the story as if for the first time. The young figure I discovered in the mysterious time and space of story was only dimly related to the figure I had previously known in propositions and theories— Instead of intricate problems of cathexis and fixation, I encountered the mysteries of self-discovery. Instead of single-minded attention to the problem of self-love, I found images touching on a variety of deeply felt human experiences, love, sexuality, transformation, and dreams. It is not uncommon today for writers to point out the positive aspects of narcissism, the need for self-love, and the beauty of finding pleasure in one's own body and spirit. But the story of Narcissus goes further than that. It brings into focus and magnifies a specific phase in the process of self-transformation. Like any authentic reflection of experience, it mixes good and evil, pleasure and pain. It doesn't moralize, it describes with sensitivity and insight the feelings and ideas which surround and constitute the human experience of change. 
The only way to know something about Narcissus is to read the story carefully. The first thing we notice is that he was born to a river god and a river naiad. He has a pretty watery ancestry. In mythology, beings of the water like Thetis and Proteus are fluid. They change shape with ease. They are flexible. This watery heritage of Narcissus, his natural element, is something to keep in mind. The next significant point found at the beginning of the story concerns the curse. Tiresias, the blind hermaphroditic seer, prophesies that Narcissus will live to a ripe old age, provided he never knows himself. He doesn't say that Narcissus will have a tragic end if he loves himself. The prophecy concerns self-knowledge, not self-love. So if we are to follow this ominous hint, we should be alerted to notice threatening signs of self-knowledge. It seems strange, of course, to feel suspicious about self-knowledge. That everyone agrees is a good thing. It is self-love that has negative connotations. To grasp the import of the story, however, we have to hold in abeyance any judgments, especially moralistic ones, until it's been told in full. The opening lines have other revealing things to say. The one thing the storyteller says about Narcissus as an infant is that he was lovable. Yet by the time he is 16, and young men and women are chasing him, seeking his love, none of them can get through to him. Ovid's Latin describes Narcissus as filled with a dura superbia, a hard haughtiness. This creature whose natural home is moist and fluid is characterized by hardness, an impenetrable hardness that makes the attentions of others glance off him without leaving any emotional trace. Like others who scorn love, Hippolytus and Artemis, for example, he directs his energies toward hunting deer. The affectionate words of the young people, including those of the unfortunate Echo, bounce off Narcissus's hardness, and the goddess of vengeance sanctions a curse. Narcissus will one day love, but the object of his love will be himself, and, like the companions he has spurned, he himself will feel the pain of unrequited love. We are then led in the story to the scene at the pool, where Ovid says Narcissus tried to quench the thirst that was inside him, deep within him. Like any other detail in the story, this thirst of Narcissus is more than a simple device of the plot. In his hardness, he is alienated from his own nature, and his longing, however unconscious for his own roots, is properly symbolized as a thirst, which he feels deep within him. Eventually, Narcissus satisfies his thirst at the pool, but only after a time of crisis. For the pool of water not only serves a basic psychological need— it also has a higher capacity and purpose. In the water of the pool, Narcissus sees an image, an enchanting face, like the marble statue of a god with smooth cheeks and ivory neck, and for the first time he feels the compelling power of love. He tries to kiss and embrace the image, but finds that they are separated by a thin film of water. The narrator chides him for being so foolish as to seek someone who is nowhere to desire an image that comes with you, stays with you, and goes away with you. But the image in the pool has fascinated and charmed Narcissus. He lies on the grass and contemplates the face that is so attractive, so close, yet impossibly far away. Finally, he recognizes the face. It is himself. He is burning with love for his own self. He discovers that what he desires is already his own, yet it is separate from him. He immediately realizes 
that the only outcome for this situation is his own death, and he knows that his death will be the death of the boy he loves. Then like wax melting in the warmth around it and the hidden fire of his passion, Narcissus dies. And even in the underworld, he continues to gaze into the pool, watching his image, while above ground the naiads and nymphs find in place of his body a flower with a yellow center. Mythology, of course, is not to be read literally. This story is not a chronicle or a newspaper account of some strange happening. Myth is more like a dream whose symbols have to be entertained and allowed to generate associations if its meaning is to be uncovered. The death of Narcissus, like Echo, like the pool, like the enchanting face in the water, is not literal. The transition from the body to the flower is a death and resurrection. The story of Narcissus is a symbol of transformation. Before exploring the symbols further and arriving at a more specific understanding of Narcissus's fate, perhaps it would be useful to consider a few versions of the story that followed Ovid's. The tale of Narcissus has fascinated poets and dramatists, and of course, psychologists, just as Narcissus's image fascinated him. And the similarity, as we shall see, is not superficial. In the poetry of courtly love, the reflecting pool of Narcissus is identified with the idealized lady who acts as a reflecting mirror for her lover, showing him his ideal nature. She is an illusion, but when her blemishes and warts appear, as they inevitably do, and she can no longer function as an untarnished mirror, the lover learns the difference between the real and the illusory. He realizes that it is his own ideals that attract him. The Narcissus experience is, for him, an opportunity to grow in self-consciousness. This approach to Narcissus does not explain all of the mysteries, but it does lead us in the proper direction. These poets connected the story of Narcissus to forms of love and knowledge, and they implied that the image Narcissus saw could have been something outside himself, and yet at the same time, part of him. We find a further clue in the work of a later writer, the 18th century poet Edward Young. In Night Thoughts, he praises Narcissus, the contemplative, the person who has the kind of strength which allows him to enjoy a moment of stillness with himself. Then, in Conjectures on Original Composition, Young clarifies his understanding of the nature of creative contemplation. He refers to Narcissus when encouraging novice writers to search themselves for their own creative forces. In one paragraph in particular, Young summarizes his interpretation of the Narcissus experience. Using imagery reminiscent of Ovid's version of the myth, Young writes, Therefore, dive deep into thy bosom. Learn the depth, extent, bias, and full fort of thy mind. Contract full intimacy with the stranger within thee. Excite and cherish every spark of intellectual light and heat, however smothered under former negligence or scattered through the dull, dark mass of common thought. And collecting them into a body, let thy genius rise as the sun from chaos. Young's advice to the would-be creative person, dive deeply into oneself and explore the depths, become intimate with the stranger within, value every spark of light and heat, gather them into a body, and let that genius rise like the sun, is precisely the experience of Narcissus. He explored the depths of his own nature, the pond of water, and he saw a part of himself that was a stranger to him. He felt the unfamiliar warmth of attraction and love, capacities he had neglected and allowed to dissipate. 
And this new quality, this newly discovered genius, did rise like the sun, in the shape of a yellow-centered flower. In Jung's view, then, to have a narcissus experience is to discover a new self, to bring to the surface a formerly hidden potentiality, an altogether new image of oneself. More true to the myth, narcissism is the encounter with a new image of oneself, which at first seems to be the portrait of a stranger. The stranger is attractive and fascinating. He elicits our love and attention. Then he is revealed to be a part of self. The stranger Narcissus encounters and falls in love with is in fact a vision of his own potentiality. At the beginning of the 17th century, some students at Oxford wrote a play about Narcissus and quaintly made the point, nor sun nor moon nor yet nymph am I, and though my sweet face be set out with ruby, you miss your mark, I am a man, as you be. Tiresias's prophecy then is tantamount to truism. If this infant Narcissus never comes to know himself in all his potentiality, this person he is now will never die, will never change. But if he should encounter some new aspect of himself, the person he now is will be threatened with extinction. Suppose Narcissus were to be found on the apparent bright side of Tiresias's prophecy. He would never know himself, and he would live a long life. Then indeed we would see Narcissus as Neurosis, he would be a hard, brittle, impenetrable, unloving, self-contained, alienated person, leaving wounded hearts scattered around him. But fortunately, Narcissus underwent a change. He found himself in a pool of water, and there felt the many contradictory currents of love and confusion. He discovered two important elements missing from his makeup, water and fire. Water, his own inner natural liquidity and changeability, and fire, the universal agent and symbol of transformation. The water served Narcissus as a thin reflecting mirror, revealing the image he longed to embrace. That thin film of water was like the delicate screen on which we behold our daydreams. Both require stillness. The slightest intruding ripple erases the image. And in a sense, both are non-existent. The image on the water cannot be grasped. The daydream cannot be contained. The only way to union for Narcissus and the image was death to them both. Likewise with a cherished self-image. If we wish to be united with an attractive concept of a potential self, the existent self, along with the new concept, has to disappear, while a new being incorporating the new understanding takes its place. This is self-transformation. Some stories about personal change and creative expansion emphasize the contrast between the old and the new. The story of Narcissus focuses on minute aspects of the crisis of change and is content merely to symbolize the new being in the flower. But the story does include one subtle aspect of the final phase. The encounter between Narcissus and his image does not end with his transformation. It continues indefinitely in the underworld, in the unconscious. The old Narcissus continues to gaze into the underworld pool at the stranger's face, even after he has been transformed. Narcissus was indeed transformed. In the symbolic imagery of the story, he changed from youthful hunter to golden-hearted flower, but his transformation is described in less symbolic terms also. He learns how to love and how to be loved. 
As mentioned before, Narcissus as an infant had one distinguishing quality. He was lovable. To translate Ovid literally, the infant Narcissus was someone who even then could be loved. But it was 16 years before he recognized his own lovability and the active experience of loving. He learned both aspects of love at the pool, though in sequence. First, seeing the strange face in the water, he felt the stirring of new emotions. Not recognizing the face as his own, he loved someone outside of himself. He experienced object love. A few moments later, he saw that the face was his own, and he knew from the testimony of his own feelings that he was a person who could be loved. At the crux of the Narcissus story, these are subtle insights. The myth is saying that true personal transformation involves knowledge and love. Narcissus is transformed, recovers his deepest nature by acquiring knowledge about love and its part in his life, about giving and receiving love. At the same time, it is the energy of love itself that provides the knowledge and is the dynamic thrust behind the transformation. Narcissus is both the subject and object of the one love he experiences at the pool, and he is both knower and known. This is neither pure object love, nor is it pure love of self. It is more transformative than either. At the pool, it is true that Narcissus is not actually giving his love to others, but the implication of the story is that, after this preliminary experience of self-knowledge, he will be capable of that other kind of love. At the water, Narcissus experiences something quite different from classical narcissism. He is, in fact, the least likely candidate to receive such a label. Once he has felt the intense emotions of loving and has seen a new image of himself, as someone to be loved, he knows that he is a dying person. That is, he is undergoing radical change. Change involves an end and a beginning, and Ovid skillfully describes the change that comes over Narcissus. As morning frost gradually disappears in the warmth of sunshine, the old Narcissus fades away. As yellow wax dissolves in heat, Narcissus slowly disappears. Imitating Narcissus, experiencing true narcissism, a person undergoes a striking moment of self-discovery, then gradually feels the old self fade. The Narcissus story supports the adage that one has to love himself before he can love others, but it is more precise. The story implies that before a person can love others, he or she has to have a deeply felt image of self as lovable. Until one finds that unfamiliar image, love may be all around, but it cannot penetrate. Until the fire of authentic self-love melts the hard armor of wax that shields all affections, the person remains remote and alienated. When Narcissus discovers that the stranger is himself, he says, I am he, I felt it, now I have my own image, I am burning with love for myself. It is a felt experience, not just intellectual knowledge. What he sees in the pool is a picture of himself he had forgotten or simply never recognized before. It is a true recognition, a remembering, since Narcissus from the very beginning of his life was lovable. The Narcissus experience then has the aspect of remembering, of recovering a lost self-concept, of seeing again, even though the vision may never have been a conscious one, one's own true nature. Like Narcissus, we are all born lovable. It is a prerogative of our human heritage, but we have forgotten Our memories are sparked only by the flame of the felt experience of loving our own image. 
The symbol of the flower contains images of fire and water. Looking for Narcissus, the young people find instead this golden-centered Narcissus flower, the daffodil. In the Oxford student's play, the actor playing the part of Narcissus appears holding a flower and says, If you take me for Narcissus, you are very silly. I desire you to take me for a daffodown dilly. While the element of water has softened the hardness and brought nourishing life to the roots of his being, fire has consumed the old Narcissus and appears in the new as a sun-like golden center. In his essay on the Chinese image of the golden flower, C.G. Young points out that the combination of fire, water, and flowers figures frequently in dreams and mythology. A seed, he says, is often shown floating in water, while from the depths below, fire penetrates the seed and causes the formation of a golden flower. For Young, this is a symbol of the union of consciousness and life, giving form to the fundamental elements of transformation. Narcissus burns with love for the image in the water, and the fire of his love causes the seed image to grow into a flower. The contemplation of some images of self, like the face in the pool, leads to a new depth of experience. Other images are like the empty reflections of echo. They are fading and unpromising. The story of Narcissus tells of the transforming power of compelling visions of authentic but neglected potentialities. As Narcissus needed a pool of water to reveal to him a new image of self, we too need sources for our own creative contemplation. The myth itself is like a pool of water, reflecting a portrait of the reader. It offers opportunity not only to story, but also to share his experience. The full magic issue is available to order at parabola.org, where you'll also find a wealth of free essays, articles, interviews, and poems, and for our subscribers, a rich online archive of previous issues. Please consider supporting this podcast and Parabola magazine by purchasing a back issue like Magic or becoming a subscriber. Our final thought for today comes from magician Doug Henning, who said, we forget that life is magic. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.